listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belabored Episode 246. In this episode, we are talking to J.W. Mason about inflation and what it means for workers. And before we start the news, just a quick word about our sponsors, you. We have been doing critical independent reporting on labor issues for nearly a decade now. And if you value what you hear, please go to our Patreon page to support us with a monthly contribution. And you can get some really cool swag from Molly Crabapple while you're there. It's patreon.com slash belabored. And now for the news. May 1st was International Workers' Day, a day with origins in American labor history, but ironically, one that is celebrated much more in other countries than here in the U.S. But in 2006, the immigrant rights movement turned May 1st into a nationwide day of protest. And since then, the day has been an occasion that brings together the labor movement and immigrant advocates to push for rights and relief for immigrant workers and their communities. Earlier this week, about 39 cities became sites for May Day actions as immigrant workers and rights groups took to the streets to demand that the Biden administration use his executive power to change some of the most draconian aspects of the immigration enforcement system. Activists are demanding an end to Immigration and Customs Enforcement's 287G program, in which immigration agents collaborate with local police. They're also seeking an end to private detention centers for immigrants facing deportation and an expansion of temporary protected status for immigrants in need of humanitarian reprieve to remain in the country. In Milwaukee, activists organized a two-day event, May 1st and 2nd, called Days Without Latinxes and Immigrants, in addition to a two-mile-long march for immigration reform. I spoke with Christine Newman-Ortiz, executive director of Voces de la Frontera, about who participated in the actions and why. This was the first year that Voces de la Frontera members had... um organized a uh, two-day general strike known as a day without Latinos and immigrants for May 1 and May 2. And the reason they voted to do that was to um, the fact that May 1 this year fell on a Sunday. And while there are a lot of workers on um, farms and supermarkets and restaurants, a lot of people um, mostly work on Monday. So that was the idea of a uh, two-day strike. And the motivation behind it was to really continue to emphasize the urgent need around our national and collective demands on May 1, uh, which is to put pressure on President Biden that in the absence of Democrats being able to deliver on immigration reform through the Build Back Better bill, that he needed to use his executive power to fulfill his campaign promises, which includes uh, ensuring that there is um, increased protections for undocumented immigrant workers and their families who've been here for so many years now and working through the pandemic, and then to uh, dismantle the Trump-era enforcement programs that were really escalated. So Title 42, uh, which is you know blocking people from Latin America, Africa, and Haiti, from having their rights, international and national human rights laws to apply for asylum and being denied. Um, and um, and then obviously the dismantling of the 287G program, which is something that um, legalizes racial profiling and it deputizes law enforcement to, um, to become ICE agents 
and to really prioritize deportation over public safety. And that program, for example, in Wisconsin has grown to eight counties under the Trump period and has grown nationwide to 142. And this is a totally discredited program, and it's something that um, uh, President Biden had promised to get rid of. And then another area that we think is very important is to also put pressure on President Biden to end federal contracts with private detention centers where 80% of you know, immigrants are being held. So this is a, a business that also contributes to the, um, uh, to the long delay on immigration reform because you have these financial interests that are behind it, both corporate interests that are benefiting from the status quo and then also um, the private prison industry as well. So this is really, I think, an inspiring um, you know, inspiring to do this coming out of this pandemic and to and coming out of a very strong fight in 2021 for immigration reform to really shift our demands in this direction and make sure that we kind of break through um, everything that's happening to make sure that the um, the dignity of immigrants and refugees that we continue to advance on that. I think a lot of immigrant rights advocates sort of maybe breathed a small sigh of relief when um, Biden won the election. But can you talk about what you've observed, you know, over the past couple of years? Um, how much has actually changed under Biden in, in spite of his campaign promises? And, you know, 287G and private detention centers, these were topics that people were talking about under the Obama administration. So can you talk about the seemingly glacial pace of change and how you see that in terms of the political moment that we're in right now? Mm-hmm. I'm, I am actually optimistic. I'm optimistic in that I feel our movement is stronger than ever uh, over the last 20 years in that the majority of people, for example, in our state, you know, across party lines and nationally strongly support immigration reform with a path to citizenship. And that it's actually a winning issue in elections if um, in these swing states, there was like like recent polling around that and um, and the growing power itself of, um, you know, that that helped drive um, this far right white nationalist uh, administration out of office in 2020, but also on the promise of, uh, you know, the kind of transformation that we needed in our immigration system. The way I've seen it is that, uh, you know, we can't get discouraged in that, you know, we were short just one vote in the Senate. And that's so it means that as a movement, we have to keep being engaged electorally. But it doesn't mean uh, getting caught up in the game of lesser of two evils, which is, um, I think, what the status quo expects from us, uh, which is, um, well, you know, the far right Trump party now white nationalist party, uh, you know, clearly they're not going to vote for them. So I don't like to try very hard and uh, de facto I'll get people's vote. And and that's not true. That's not true. And it's a dangerous mindset. But the responsibility ultimately does come from us at the grassroots level to put really strong pressure um, on the um, on President Biden, um, you know, and Democrats, uh, you know, to defund these programs. And to um, and to drive the change, and it always has been that case. And I think the challenge in that has been that, um, yeah, I think it's you know money interests and um, you know a, a culture of racism that is kind of baked into the cake. And so the change has our, our 
ability to defend ourselves from attacks, our ability to make progress at the state level, at the local level, at the national level, that's just a credit to the movement itself, you know, and, and that's what we have to keep um, building on. So I think there have been very important achievements because, um, you know, we were successful to defeat what is a modern day fascist, you know, what was, you know, a fascist administration. And it's that there is a, an emboldened fascist movement and politicians that are totally lining up with that and who, who in a position of, of government um, can really create real harm. And are, so I think one is that piece. And then the other piece is this accountability piece and election years are a good time for accountability because um, that's the time where we can dance. That's how we advanced under the Obama administration. That's how we won DACA. The things that were won initially through executive action um, under uh, President Biden were inspiring. Uh, the fact that we were able to restore uh, enforcement priorities is a big deal. Now, driving without a license, by and large, uh, does not mean you know an automatic uh, deportation. But we have to demand more. Um, otherwise, we're actually we're behind the status quo we were pre-Trump. But again, I think we're in a stronger movement and we've seen what's happening with the Supreme Court and the attack on women's rights. Um, the fact that the economy is more polarized than ever in terms of like the very, very rich. And, this, you know, it's all like synergetic and uh, immigrant and the immigrant and refugee rights movement is a movement for racial justice. It is a movement um, for immigrant and refugee rights. Um, so we are very much at the center of this and uh, an important part of the solution. But if we don't unite strongly and lift up our voices, um, it's we're certainly not going to advance. And um, the context that we're in, the, the place that we're in, is a very dangerous time. And so we have to step up. Um, and I do believe not just in organizing around some of these bigger things, but we have to organize at the very, very local level like we formed the Essential Worker Rights Network out of the pandemic. And so we're like really vested in um, drilling down on using our economic uh, power as workers to advance the struggle around like specific demands, local demands. But then as part of this larger movement, um, the students in our state, you know, in our organization, in our city, you know, have been organizing around improving um, school lunches, but are involved in the immigrant rights movement as well. So I think in all these ways, you know, Local 287G, it's been beat back at the local level. It has to be continued to beat back as we demand that Biden knock it out nationally, which he can. All of these things, he can. But the political will comes from bottom-up pressure, and, and it's up to us. That was Christine Newman-Ortiz, Executive Director of Voces de la Frontera. Expanding on my obsession with the supply chain of late, I reported recently on the struggles of tugboat workers for the most recent issue of the American Prospect. The ever-given getting stuck in the Suez Canal last year reminded us of the important work of tug and tow boats, as we all shared memes of the little tiny tugboats working to pry the giant container ship loose. While it's not every day that the tugboat workers have to yank a massive vessel free from blocking one of global shipping's major routes, Tugboat workers are constantly at work making sure that the behemoth ships we all rely on to carry our stuff get there safely, and often the workers on those tugboats are putting their own safety at risk. 
Jason Woods, a longtime tugboat worker and the president of International Longshore and Warehouse Union, or ILWU, Local 400, quoted a former colleague who described his job as hours of boredom punctuated by moments of terror. The ship's moving, the tug's moving, everything is moving, Woods said. Even something like pulling a ship off of berth, something that's so standardized and easy, can go badly just because of the size of the equipment and the forces that are generated by the power. Ivan de la Guardia, a Panama Canal tugboat captain and leader in the local Union de Capitanes y Oficiales de Cubierta, or UCOC, told me of similar conditions, but even worse, because he said the principle underwriting everything in the canal zone is that the canal cannot be stopped. That means the workers don't have the right to strike, and even small industrial actions face retaliation. Negotiations of the workers' collective bargaining agreement has so far taken two years, yet the canal continues to bring in more money each year, money, he said, that never seems to trickle down to the people who keep the canal running. The tugboat workers, whose unions are also part of the International Transport Workers Federation, recently launched a campaign that highlights the deaths of tugboat workers Troy Pearson and Charlie Cragg off the coast of British Columbia and demands better conditions in an industry facing a global race to the bottom. As I wrote in the prospect, a few corporations at the top are raking in astronomical sums as demand for shipping has skyrocketed. In 2021, the ocean shipping industry earned $190 billion in profits, five times as much as it made between 2010 and 2020 combined. Despite this windfall, companies work together to wring every last penny from their tug and towage contracts. In turn, those pennies are wrung out of the workers on the tugboats. The container ship is the profit center, everything else just a cost to be driven as low as possible. The tugboat workers around the world face wildly different labor law regimes, but the same struggle, how to make sure their incredibly specialized, skilled labor is valued, and that their lives are protected when at every turn global shipping sees them simply as a cost to be cut. We will put links at the Descent website to the ITF's tugboat campaign as well as to my story. It's been a busy few weeks for union elections at Amazon and Starbucks. First, the good news. More Starbucks outlets unionized in New York and Florida. Following a flurry of successful union votes upstate, Starbucks workers in the New York City metro area are also on a tear. A Starbucks in Massapequa unionized with a National Labor Relations Board vote count of 19 to 8. Workers at a Starbucks in Caesars Bay, Brooklyn, voted unanimously to unionize 17 to 0. Last month, workers at the big Starbucks Reserve Roastery on Astor Place, which we covered a few episodes ago, voted to unionize as well. Also, Florida just got its first unionized Starbucks in Tallahassee. After filing for a union election back in January, the workers finally voted, and the union won 16 to 1. Six more Florida Starbucks outlets are set to vote in the coming weeks. Also, on April 28th, five Starbuckses, is that the correct plural, in Eugene, Oregon, held union elections, and four of them voted to unionize by a wide margin. For the relatively few stores that have voted to remain non-union, following the company's ruthless anti-union pressure campaigns, some of those votes are now being challenged. These organizing efforts are supported by a national organization, Starbucks Workers United, which is now squaring off against the national figurehead for the Starbucks Corporation, Howard Schultz. The CEO has been crusading against the unionization wave by promising various reforms, while the company's anti-union propaganda campaign pushes falsehoods about the consequences of going union. 
This week, Schultz turned his passive-aggressive union busting up a notch by claiming that he would provide raises and more training to some Starbucks workers, but not the ones who have unionized. Starbucks Workers United has denounced Schultz's offer as an illegal retaliatory tactic to undermine the union and is demanding equal treatment for union and non-union employees. There are now about 55 Starbuckses that have voted to unionize across the country. And according to Starbucks Workers United, more than 240 stores have filed union petitions so far. Tony Ann Buscemi, a Massapequa Starbucks worker, spoke for all of us when she reflected on the meaning of the union victory amid a lot of other grim news these days. She said in a statement, quote, I am constantly worried about the state of the world and where the future of this country is headed. So to be able to be part of the labor movement and to be actively making people's lives better makes me feel like maybe everything isn't so terrible, unquote. Well, we can hope. And now for the not-so-good news. The momentum of the Amazon labor union was dampened a bit when the second Amazon warehouse in New York to hold a union vote, LDJ5, voted 618 to 380 against unionizing with ALU. As you probably know, ALU captured the world's attention a few weeks ago with the stunning election win at the JFK 8 warehouse on Staten Island. But there may be a number of logistical and political reasons the ALU didn't manage to unionize the LDJ5 warehouse, which is just adjacent to JFK 8. LDJ5 does a lot of the sorting work that comes after workers at the other warehouse package items for shipping. At LDJ5, there were more part-time workers, and Amazon, desperate to thwart unionization at the second warehouse, invested heavily in a union-busting campaign there. And of course, it's just really hard to run two union drives at once with a small group of volunteer rank-and-file organizers. But the ALU says they're still proud of the work they had done and will continue to push towards securing a contract for the one unionized warehouse and supporting organizing efforts at other Amazon facilities across the country, such as BMH1, the Bessemer, Alabama warehouse that is currently in litigation over the results of its second union election in which the union was defeated again. But even with the loss at LDJ5, the ALU has already proven that it can thwart the attacks of one of the world's biggest corporations while effectively organizing in a notoriously anti-labor work place. And if ALU couldn't repeat its victory this time, someone else is probably destined to do so very soon. Workers' Memorial Day was last Thursday, April 28th, and around the world, working people marked the losses of their colleagues and the callous way that too many bosses treat their employees. It is particularly significant this year as the U.S. approaches one million deaths from COVID-19, many of which, of course, were workplace-related. As part of a week of actions and observations, the National Day Labor Organizing Network has released a new report, Recovering from Climate Disasters, Immigrant Day Laborers as Second Responders. Documenting the work of day laborers after Hurricane Ida hit my new hometown of New Orleans in 2021, the report exposes the dire conditions faced by immigrant workers doing disaster relief and recovery work. I spoke with Cal Soto, Workers' Rights Director at the National Day Labor Organizing Network, about the report. We're talking on actual Workers' Memorial Day um, about a report that you guys had come out about workers as responders after Hurricane Ida. Um, So before we get into sort of the contents of the report, tell us about the workers that that you were talking with that um, were doing that response work. Yeah, and uh, we... I think it Professor Nick Theodore or someone around that orbit who published this paper uh, coined the term second responders. 
And that's the term we like to use for the workers who are not the emergency services that come in right after a catastrophe like Hurricane Ida, um, but soon after are there in the area to do the really important demolition, cleanup, and rebuilding work that helps us to keep going forward after a natural disaster. And so we've found that the population of workers that does this second response work has largely been immigrant workers, uh, in many cases, uh, undocumented workers, who are the most able to quickly respond to an area, move, and uh, take on various different tasks. Our network, the National Day Labor Organizing Network, has focused on how we can improve the conditions, working conditions, and give space to build worker organizing power among this population specifically, day laborers, uh, workers who are not permanently hired for long-term jobs um, and traditionally are associated with uh, residential construction, moving, uh, gardening, and any number of jobs that are done on a day-to-day basis. So those workers are the same workers we talked to in this study, it turns out, and who have been uh, largely responsible for the cleanup and rebuilding efforts after Hurricane Ida in New Orleans, and we can go back to Katrina and before uh, and see that pattern play out. Yeah, there's actually a, a beautiful statue along the riverfront for the immigrant workers who helped clean up after Katrina, um, which I love. Of course, it is not enough to just put up a statue. Um, so yeah, tell us about some of the findings of this report. Yeah, for sure. We uh, were out there talking to workers about eight weeks after Hurricane Ida, and it turned out that that was a time when there was a lot of rebuilding roofing efforts. And so we talked to workers about their experience with that rebuilding, uh, how they uh, experienced issues like wage theft, uh, their uh, interaction with health and safety protocol, and also figuring out how they themselves uh, were able to get work and what their wages were. So um, the interesting things that I would like to highlight in this study was that the actual average wage um, that folks were going out for during this time was higher. And that actually maps on to some of the discussion that we've heard about labor shortages, um, especially around the time of the rebuilding, and also uh, generally about the uh, essentially inflation issues that we're seeing. Um, The workers were uh, getting close to $20 an hour to go out and do this important rebuilding demolition type of work. Now, that's only half of the story, though, because the other notable statistic that came out of the study was that over 90%, 91% of those same workers had experienced some form of wage theft where they're not paid fully for the hours they worked or not paid overtime um, within the last month before we spoke to them. So that means during that rebuilding effort, the incidences of wage theft were skyrocketing. And so we've seen that that kind of uh, balance, maybe the wages might be high, higher uh, demand, but at the same time, the employers who are going out and actually hiring the workers for this kind of work are fully planning on taking advantage of those workers because of their status, because of their lack of information, um, and their vulnerability just being transient workers. And so that's why there's a need for a heightened oversight of these work sites uh, and more protection for these workers. Yeah. And 
obviously um, the climate crisis is going to lead to to more of this. Um, <laughs> I, I think about this a lot more now that I've moved back to New Orleans, but certainly um, this is coming. So what can we learn from this report in order to be better prepared for the next crisis and perhaps what we didn't learn, you know, with Katrina? Right. And it's really uh, very prevalent in the minds of folks who live in that area. Sarah, I've noticed even though climate change is absolutely causing more disasters like this and natural catastrophes uh, throughout the country, the areas that are feeling it most really are that Hurricane Alley down there um, in the southeast. And uh, New Orleans has that intimate experience from 2005 and the way that the resources uh, and the lack thereof uh, for the city's residents, the people who were, um, whose homes were destroyed, whose lives were lost and upturned by the storm, they've really taken an interest in how to better prepare and become more resilient in the future. Um, unfortunately, what we've seen is that these disasters have only gotten stronger and more common. And so we're seeing every single year um, the people who are living in, the, in, in harm's way, the people who are, um, are most vulnerable to these storms and are seeking out that kind of support. We're not actually seeing the investment, I'd say, in the, the changes that need to happen policy-wise to make sure that these uh, catastrophes and the, and the issues that come along with it are, are, are changed in the future. And so that's also true for, uh, for the health and safety infrastructure that needs to be in place to protect the workers that come to a place after a natural disaster. So um, we know that there are physical barriers for workers, uh, like immigrant workers, to be able to access reporting of uh, wage theft or health and safety issues and just getting basic protection equipment, PPE, or training. Worker Memorial Day, April 28th. It's an important date because it's the date that we recognize the and and commemorate the lives of those we've lost on the job. Deaths that are completely preventable if uh, given the proper protection. Um, deaths that nobody thinks is acceptable just in order to, to make a buck for a company. And so April 28th is also important because in 1971, that's when the Occupational Safety and Health Act was passed. Today, we have less investigators, ocean investigators in the country than they did in 1980. And there's only more workers and more work sites. And so that lack of investment in a health and safety infrastructure is one of the primary uh, reasons why we see such horrible outcomes after these natural disasters. And putting those natural disasters in the same time as an ongoing pandemic, yeah, it really underscores this this day this year, I think I'm, I'm thinking a lot about um, the toll that COVID has taken on people and then the, the climate crisis that is just coming sort of ever faster on top of it. After you see these storms and the impact they've had on immigrant communities, especially, but all the communities that are in this area, um, you, you see the, the need and you see this, that the suffering is increasing every year. And so that's what we're seeing out of this report. We hope that it's taken alongside, you know, other recent reports on the environment um, to, to be really a, a, a call to this government that says it wants to support uh, uh, environmental justice, that says it wants to support immer- 
in the immigrant working community, who also, you're right, Tara, who've also been excluded from much of the relief that uh, others have been able to, to get during this pandemic, um, has not been accessible to most of these workers. So we'd like to see that investment, not only in health and safety infrastructure, but really to take away other barriers to reporting. I mean, the other side of this is the fear of retaliation, um, the fear of retribution by uh, immigration enforcement. Um, if you feel that you're going to lose your life and lose your place in this country, if you report uh, workplace abuse, um, that's an incredible power that employers have over these workers in particular. Um, and so we've seen a national movement to remove that fear and threat of retaliation, the Dale campaign, um, calling for worker uh, immigration protections and a work authorization for those workers who are brave enough to come forward and be whistleblowers against their uh, abusive employers. And so that's something that in New Orleans, after these natural disasters, is clear the access to reporting and fear of being uh, uh, um, rich, uh, retaliated against is huge. Um, and it's something that exists even outside of natural disasters. New Orleans has one of the key cases of workplace retaliation um, based on an ICE arrest. And that's Hoel, the Hard Rock case, um, the, the Hard Rock Hotel that collapsed and a worker who was a whistleblower um, that weeks after that collapse, weeks after collaborating with the government, was arrested and has been deported and is still fighting for his return. So um, we really believe that that's the other area of focus here, that threat of retaliation, the fear that exists in these second responders can't be understated. That was Cal Soto, Workers' Rights Director at the National Day Labor Organizing Network. We are hearing so much about inflation these days, and so many of the conversations blame the problem on workers. But these conversations are incredibly opaque, and often we know that's on purpose to keep those of us without graduate degrees in economics from understanding what's going on and how to fight. We know a lot of you out there, whether in your unions or just personally, are wondering what the heck is going on. And luckily, while neither Michelle nor I has a graduate degree in economics ourselves, we do have some friends who do. We asked J.W. or Josh Mason, Associate Professor of Economics at John Jay College, City University of New York, and Fellow at the Roosevelt Institute, to join us to explain inflation, why we probably shouldn't call what's happening right now inflation at all, and so much more. I learned a lot from this conversation, and I hope you will too. And if you have further questions for Josh or for us about this topic, please do write to us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org, and maybe we'll do a follow-up conversation in a few weeks with more of your questions. We're just going to start with a very, very basic. What is inflation? Well, unfortunately, it's not so basic. Um, exactly. <laughs> that's where a lot of confusion starts um, right there. Um, you know, the term was first used, and I have to go back to the history here because it's relevant. People talked about, you know, an increase in the money supply. That's inflation. What's inflating? Well, it's the amount of money. And, you know, this is a story we all picked up at some point along the way. There's more money chasing the same amount of stuff. And so the price of the stuff has to go up. And so there's this idea that, you know, inflation, it starts with money. It's too much money. And then the price of everything goes up together. But when we actually measure inflation, we're not measuring the money supply. What we're measuring is the prices of stuff that people actually buy. And so what inflation actually is, is if you take a basket of goods, the supposedly the basket of goods that the typical or representative household buys, and putting that basket together is not a straightforward thing, but you've got supposedly this basket. And then you look at the average change in prices 
of all the things in the basket. So inflation is the average price change across all the various things that people buy. And the thing about that, you know, is the price index may be going up, you know, maybe over the past year, it's gone up by 8%. But it doesn't mean the price of everything has gone up by 8%. The price of some things like gasoline and used cars has gone up by a lot. The price of other things like rent has gone up by somewhat. And the price of other things like, let's say, healthcare over the past year hasn't risen much at all. So we don't actually have out in the world the prices. We have the prices of some things going up and other things not. And there may be very different reasons for what's going up and what's going down. So a lot of confusion, I think, starts with the idea that there is this one thing out there called inflation, as opposed to a lot of different prices that are maybe doing different things for different reasons. Right. So, you know, we've had steady price increases in like rents in most major cities, not just in the U.S., but around the world for years and years now. And we haven't heard that called inflation. That's right. But suddenly, yeah. So talk about, I guess, the the collection of prices that go into this basket, how they're chosen and why that, you know, decision looks the way it does, I guess. Well, again, this is the, the theory behind it is you you take, you know, not the typical household, but the, the total amount of spending done by families, households, you know, people for their own needs. And of course, that's going to rate the people who spend more, you know, above the people who spend less. Um, and you, you break that down. How much do you spend in each month? Well, you spend, you know, 35 or 40 percent of your income on housing. And you spend, you know, on average, obviously in big chunks, but on average over the year, 5 percent of your income on an automobile. You spend, you know, 15 percent of your income on, on, on you know, health care and education and a certain amount of your income on on, on uh a certain amount of your spending goes to your bills, utility bills, energy bills. So we take all that. And again, you know, they do surveys. They try to get these numbers right. And and that's the basket. Now, there's some weird things that go in there. For instance, rent is hard to measure accurately, but they try to do it. But there's something else in there called owner's equivalent rent, which is a pretty pretty big piece of the basket, which is really just asking people who own their homes, how much do you think you could rent your house for if you decided to rent it? And they make a guess about that. And that's the equivalent rent that they're supposed to be paying. And that's a big chunk of the CPI basket. And it's a big chunk of, uh, you know, it's an important piece of the inflation we're seeing now. And it's not based on measuring any price that anybody's actually paying. It's, it's based on people's guess about how much their homes would rent for. And then, of course, you know, measuring the, how you measure things like healthcare prices, which mostly people don't actually pay, is another 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 sort of problem. So there's there's a lot of a lot of puzzles in terms of how we measure this. I think some of it, you know, I think a lot of it is measured fairly accurately. Some of it is is more questionable. But the thing we should always be careful about is we're not. It's not just a fact out in the world. Somebody has to go out and construct these numbers, and they make a lot of choices when they're doing it. And the other thing, and this comes right right out of this, like we said, there's a lot of prices, and not everybody is buying the same stuff. Well, there's an inflation rate out there, 8%, whatever it is over the past year, but every individual has a different inflation rate and yours might be higher or lower. You know, if you did, used car prices were such a big chunk of, uh, of, of inflation over the past year, if you just didn't buy a used car last year, then your inflation rate was maybe a point and a half lower than the official statistics. Of course, if you did have to buy a used car, your inflation rate was quite a bit higher. So, so different different people are facing different inflation rates. It's not just one one rate that every 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 price is going up by. Right, right. But so so obviously there's political reasons why suddenly inflation is the topic du jour. In an interview in the the last 
the winter issue of Dissent, you noted that um, there is an important political constituency of small business owners and low wage employers who just hate that workers are not feeling as desperate and insecure as they normally do. And that is what's behind today's obsessive focus on inflation. It's rising wages that they're really afraid of. So how do we, presumably the people who are listening to this podcast are working people, they are in unions, they are thinking about unions, they're working for unions. How do we think about these charges that um, asking for raises is bad for the economy, the world, whatever we are saying inflation is bad for? Well, it's a little bit of a mixed picture because the truth is inflation, right? If, if, you, if you are buying things that you need to buy, if you're paying rent, if you have to buy gas in order to get to work, obviously everybody buys food. If the prices of those things are going up, that's, that's a real problem for you. And it's not, it's not, um, you know, it's not, it's not fake. People, people can see it. It's, it's actually in some ways too easy to see these prices, but they're real. You, you buy, you buy groceries, you know, and, and the prices are going up. So we, we shouldn't say this isn't, isn't real. This isn't, isn't a problem because rising food prices, rising rent, certainly, although, as you said, rising rents are not something new in the United States, but these are real problems for working people. The problem comes because a lot of the sort of official debate around inflation and a lot of the discussions of what to do about inflation really focus on wages. There's this sort of orthodox view that the root of inflation is always that working people are getting raises that are too big and that that's getting passed on to prices. And the only way you can control inflation is by raising unemployment so much that people can no longer demand high wages or are not in a position to get higher wages anymore. That, of course, links up with people. And there's a lot of people who just dislike higher wages for their own sake. This is actually, in some ways, I think, even worse in Europe than it is in the United States. In Europe, you know, here in the U.S., there's this whole idea of the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. If unemployment gets too low, inflation is going to start to go up. Well, we can talk more about why that's probably not a good story a bit later on. But in Europe, they, they, the, the European Central Bank actually just, just dropped the inflation bit, and they now worry about the non-accelerating wage rate of unemployment. So sort of official way they make policy is we need to keep unemployment high enough that wages don't rise. Uh, and it's not even necessarily about inflation anymore. So there's there's a long-standing view, I think, among conservatives in, in the political world and policymakers, and of course, also among lots of small business owners and uh, people like that, that, that rising wages and, and empowered workers are just a bad thing. And so when you hear you know about the measures we have to take to control inflation, you have to be very suspicious because... Uh, a lot of that is really inflation is sort of a pretext for for, for efforts they would want to take anyway to, to weaken the bargaining position of labor. Right. So we'll go into policies and all that in a second. But one of the things that drives me nuts about this, right, is this tendency in this discussion of inflation to talk about consumers and workers as though these are different sets of people. But of course, most of them are not different sets of people. They are the same people. I work at my job and then I go out and spend money to pay for the things that I need in order to do the social reproduction that makes me capable of doing my job. So I want to sort of unpack this just because like, it's an obvious political choice, right? To talk about consumers and workers as though they are opposed rather than the same people. Well, of course, there are people who are consumers who don't work and, and there may not be, you know, well, there, there, are, there are people who, whose income comes from something other than work, for instance, 
owning a business or owning financial wealth. And there may not be a lot of those people, but they do have an outsized weight in our political system. Right. Uh, of course, as you say, there's nobody who works and, and doesn't consume. The other, other category doesn't exist. But it's, it's true. And I think it changes the way you think of this, because I think there's a, a widespread view, um, unfortunately, even among some people who are, who are sort of progressive broadly in their views, that it's a good thing if wages are not rising rapidly right now because we would set off this dreaded wage price spiral. And so it's almost it's almost a good thing that, that people's wages are not keeping up with the cost of living. But of course, if you look at it the other way, if you say workers are also consumers, then obviously we would we if we've got an inflation problem, we would like to see rising wages so that workers who are also consumers can maintain their 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 standard of living. So this sort of uh, as you say, this sort of false opposition between workers and consumers feeds into this idea that lower wages are, are part of the solution to inflation or, or an appropriate response to inflation. Whereas really, if we've got an inflation problem, I think we should we should be trying to take measures to raise people's income so that they can maintain their standard of living. Right. So when we're looking at the wage increase as part of the question, like how much is it true that wages going up in certain parts of the economy a tighter labor market in services, say, how much do we know and is it possible to know how much that's actually um, affecting the price increases that are going on right now? I think we can be pretty confident that that is not what's going on. And the reason is, again, as I said, if you look at across the economy, there's a lot of prices and they aren't all rising together. The prices that are rising a lot are, number one, energy prices. You know, the price of gasoline is up 20% in the past month. It's doubled over the past 18 months. That's not American labor costs. The price of automobiles went way up, although now it's coming down. But if you look over the past year, that's a big chunk of inflation. There's some American labor there, but that is not a low-wage labor-intensive industry. It has a lot of imports. Other manufactured goods, the prices are up. If you look at the sectors of the economy where low-wage labor is concentrated, if you look at services, if you look at you know recreation and entertainment, if you look at hospitality, if you look at, if you look at the areas where, where low-wage workers work, even restaurants, those are not the places where we're seeing the big price increases. The parts of the economy where we're seeing big wage increases, and, 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 and it's very, very important to, to, to recognize that, that low-wage workers right now are seeing very large wage increases. It's a very positive aspect of the current economic situation that gets kind of overshadowed by the focus on inflation. But if we look at those low-wage sectors where the big, big wage gains are happening, those are not the prices where the price increases are happening. There's just no way that, you know, a raise for, for American restaurant workers or, or retail workers is driving up the price of oil. That, that just doesn't make any sense. Right. Right. Um, and then, of course, my my favorite and least favorite thing to point out, which is like part of the reason we have a tight labor market in particularly services and particularly sort of frontline customer facing work is because a lot of people died in those industries. Yeah. We're about to be at a million American deaths. And those were concentrated among the elderly, obviously, but also in certain industries. And other people, you know, who didn't themselves suffer any serious health problems, very reasonably saw what was happening to other people and thought, I, I need better pay or better treatment or, or better options. I'm not, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore for the terms I was doing it before. And because we have low unemployment and because we did have a, a, a strong stimulus, you know, measures earlier in the year and last year, people actually have the option so they can, they can say no to those kinds of jobs. Yeah. So again, we're going to return to that 
um, the question of the policies that have been enacted and what they've done for people. But first, like, so is high inflation necessarily a bad thing? Were our high inflation periods always terrible for workers? Um, should we push back against the narrative that inflation is always terrible? Or is it a bad idea to sort of discount the costs that gas prices going up, for instance, really do put on people? I think it's a mistake to to try to downplay inflation. I, I think you're not. I think, as you say, workers are consumers. People experience high prices. They experience them very directly. You know, my, my younger son loves, uh, older son loves to eat limes. We go through so many limes in this house. And you go to the grocery store and limes, which are like the cheapest thing in there. They used to be like 10 cents a lime and now it's 50 cents a lime. The guy actually in my bodega said, I'm not stocking limes anymore because they got so expensive. You know, so, you know, you can't tell people, you know, don't believe what you see right in front of you at the grocery store. Don't believe what you see right in front of you at the gas station. And certainly if people's rents are going up, I don't think we should say, oh, you you know, stop complaining. So I, I think it's I don't think we should downplay the fact that the rising prices for necessities of life are, are a genuine problem. I think the point we want to focus on is that. It's not the fault of workers. It's not because people are getting raises. That's not why prices are going up. And it's not the fault of the stimulus measures. It's not because we, we spent too much money. It's not because, you know, we, we, we made sure that, you know, we didn't, you know, and we didn't have what we had during the Great Recession a decade ago. We didn't have a wave of foreclosures. We didn't have a wave of evictions. We didn't have a huge rise in homelessness and hunger. It's, 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 it's kind of amazing, but it's true. So why? Well, the federal government spent a lot of money. But that's not why we're having inflation now. We, we're not having inflation because unemployment benefits were too generous. And we're not, you know, it's not. It, and, and so that's point one, you know, reject any kind of story that says this is because we've been too generous. We've been, you know, people have it too good. People, it's a labor shortage. And point two is that the, the types of measures that people are being proposing to deal with inflation, like raising interest rates, are, are not actually going to get at the real sources of inflation. If we have... Um, you know, rising oil prices globally, the Fed raising interest rates isn't going to do anything about that. If we have rising rents in, in, in a lot of the country, and we do, we had rising rents, you know, in, in major cities, as, as you know, well, before, uh, before, COVID, before COVID too, but we've got them again now. If you make it more expensive, harder to build houses, are you going to bring rents down? Because that's what raising interest rates does. You know, it makes it more expensive to build new houses. Is that going to help with our rent? No. Obviously, if you're serious about rents, you need more housing. You need more public money for housing. You need more public housing. And you need rent control in the meantime so that landlords can't take advantage of the shortage of housing and jack up prices. Those things will actually address the problem of rising rents. The kind of anti-inflation measures that are being proposed now are not going to. So I, I don't think we want to downplay the problem of inflation or say that it might be a good thing. What I think we want to say is that the solutions being proposed are not good solutions. And in a lot of cases, they're just excuses to weaken the power of labor. And there are better solutions that would also serve at the broader ends of a, of a more humane and, and you know, society. If we, if we can build more affordable housing and if we can regulate rents in private housing, we will solve people's help, help solve the sort of urgent problem people have of having a place to live. But we will also bring down inflation because rents are a big chunk of it. Yeah. So that um, brings me to, and you've mentioned, right, that, that a lot of these pandemic period policies under both Trump and Biden have actually improved living standards for people at the bottom of the wage scale. But a lot of that is running out now, has already run out, or is possibly going to run out soon, i.e. they keep kicking the can down the road on student debt. But 
you know, unless they actually forgive all student debt, people are going to have to start paying these things again. What happens when people who have had a little bit of a boost for a couple of years suddenly lose those supports? And does the inflation conversation, as you said, um, sort of lend support to people who want to cut off any assistance that we've given to working class people? Well, there's no no question about that. Uh, you know, the same people who are calling for raising interest rates are calling for an end to the moratorium on student debt. Uh, you know, the, um, the the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, uh, very, very respectable deficit hawks in, in Washington, D.C., they put out a little piece recently saying, you know, it's great that the Fed is raising interest rates to control inflation, but we also, in order to control inflation, need to uh, immediately get people paying uh, interest on their student debt again and the moratorium. And we need to cut federal assistance to the states to pay for Medicaid and Medicare, which is a little bit in the weeds, but is actually a big deal because these are oh, huge. that people depend on for their health care. The exact same arguments that get used for raising interest rates are going to get used for a lot of other austerity measures that we need to be prepared to fight. Because, and I really think this is a critical thing, once you accept the narrative that inflation is about economic overheating. Once you accept the narrative that inflation is because we've overstimulated the economy, once you accept the narrative that inflation is because unemployment is too low and wages are rising too quickly, then all that stuff just follows very logically. You shouldn't just be raising interest rates. You should be doing lots of other things to reduce people's incomes, reduce their ability to buy stuff, and reduce their ability to claim higher wages if you believe the story that motivates the the, the the interest rate approach. So I think what we've really got to do in the short run, in a lot of cases, is find ways to protect people from the impact of rising prices. You know, bus service right now all over the country should be free. It's crazy that at the same time, we've got this severe problem of, of a lack of gasoline. We're not doing anything to encourage people to take to use options other than a private car to get to work. We should be encouraging people to work from home again. There's a lot of things we could do. There's a lot of things we could do about housing. You know, the Biden administration has not been bad on this. If you watch the State of the Union, he talked a lot about, you know, we're going to deal with inflation not by cutting people's incomes, but by dealing with supply constraints and with price. He doesn't call them price controls. But when he talks about overcharging by drug companies for, for, for like diabetes medication, we're going to make rules against that. Well, that's a price control. I think we want to we want to turn the discussion about rising prices from a discussion about sort of inflation to a discussion about like what are the specific prices that are really hurting people and how can we have targeted policies that are going to deal with that. Yeah, and so so accepting that it's inflation at all in a way is complicated, right? We want to talk about specific costs, specific prices, specific things. Um, exactly. Just to follow up on this a little bit before we sort of move on from here, I did want to say like specifically one of the questions that I got, I put this out to people on Facebook. One of the questions I got from a public sector worker was like, how does all of this impact the public sector? Where again, that federal stimulus money is drying up, fiscal cliffs are imminent in state and municipal budgets, Right. That we saw this after the Great Recession. Right. And like, I am worried we will see it again. Well, first of all, just just I have to follow up on something you said there. Yeah, because this is my plea to anybody talking about the economy from a, from anywhere on the left. Don't use the word inflation. Don't say inflation. Say price increases, because it really I think it really shifts shifts the conversation because inflation is this sort of economy wide thing that probably has something to do with money and public spending and deficits. It's not concrete. When you talk about price increases, you're actually then focusing attention. Well, okay, let's talk about rent. Let's talk about healthcare. Let's talk about uh, food prices. So I think I think we should really kind of train ourselves to say price increases and not inflation. 
Now, public sector, you know, one thing about the public sector is, is I said in general, for workers have seen big wage gains, and especially at the bottom end of the wage scale, we've seen we've seen wage gains that certainly over the past year, um, maybe not in the past month, but certainly over the past year, at the bottom 20, 30, 40 percent lowest paid workers in the country, they they've been their wages have been going up faster than than the cost of living. So their real wages have been rising. That's been generally true. Public sector wages have been rising quite a bit more slowly than in the private sector. So, so I think for a lot of public sector workers, their their real living standards have probably fallen over the past year. Wages have, have they're they're slower, I think, to increase for a lot of reasons in the public sector. So that's that's one problem. As far as whether we'll have a wave of austerity, you know, the truth is it's a little different from from uh, the last time. First of all, there was a much bigger um, assistance to state and local governments uh, this time than, than than the Obama administration ever ever managed. So they didn't have the immediate hole. And then the speed of the recovery means that their tax uh, revenues have not fallen in the way that they did after 2007. So I'm not convinced that we necessarily have to see a kind of austerity. At least let's put it this way. I don't think there's sort of an economic reason why state and local governments would be forced to make big cutbacks. But of course, there are plenty of people at the state and local level who would like to pursue austerity and attack public sector workers for its own sake. And they'll certainly be looking for excuses to do that. But I think in some ways, you know, I think the point we should be emphasizing is actually they're, they're, most of these state and local governments, their fiscal situation is, is really not that bad. And we shouldn't be giving them the excuse to, uh, to be talking about this stuff. Okay, so moving on a little bit, what is the it's not inflation, it's just corporate price gouging argument missing? As we've discussed, is it that simple? Probably not. Um, what is missing in that sort of common conversation? I think it's a little hard to make that story as the main story. It's 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 true, certainly in a lot of cases, that profit margins are rising. We know that's true, and we certainly know that a lot of uh, executives, you know, when they're on on calls with investors, they they will talk about this, both that their margins are higher and that they're taking advantage of circumstances to uh, to, to push them even higher than they otherwise would, that this is an environment in which they can get away with price increases and they're taking advantage of it. I, I think that it's it's hard to make that the main story, and I'm not sure it's politically productive to make it the main story. Uh, first of all, you know, I think perhaps in certain sectors, maybe food prices, it's maybe maybe a bigger part of the picture. It's hard to be sure, but that that's probably where it's the most plausible because there are just a handful of, of big food processors kind of in the middle, you know, between the retailers and the farmers. There's only a couple of these intermediaries and they do have some pricing power and they probably, you know, have some discretion about whether they want to exploit it or not. And they may be taking advantage of the circumstances to do that a little more aggressively. I think in most of the economy, it's hard to it's hard to really tell that story. You know, I think auto manufacturers would love to have been selling more cars over the past year. I don't think they were deliberately, you know, holding back holding back inventory to drive prices higher. I think the the whole supply chain story is is the correct story that that this the way this industry is organized globally and the bad decisions they made early in the pandemic when they expected a deep depression and cut back on their orders of chips meant that they just didn't have the capacity to sell anymore and that's that's where why prices were going up i think you know i don't i don't really see like our rents going up because of some kind of market power i mean landlords have a, obviously a lot of power but i don't i don't really like that as a story of why rents are going up it's because we don't we don't build enough housing fundamentally. So I think I think it's a hard story to sustain for most of the inflation we're seeing, but I'm also not sure it leads you in the most productive direction. 
because it's, it's not actually always clear exactly what you do to address that. You know, I, I'm not sure that we want to be in the position saying, oh, we want a, a competitive market in all these areas. Competitive markets are not, not necessarily our friends if we're, we're on the side of labor. And uh, it's also, you know, maybe, you know, Archer Daniels Midland should be a public utility. It should be nationalized. But that's, that's a pretty high bar to lift. I think if we focus more on, on the supply side of the story, if we say the reason inflation is high, a fundamental reason, is that we have this, this economy is a very complicated machine and the people who run it with short-term profit in mind don't do a good job maintaining it and don't do a good job planning for contingencies. And the result is when you have a disruption like this, you're just not able to get the things that people want to buy to the people and that's when prices go up. And so the solution to that is we need to actually you know, boost supply. We need to have, as again, we need to build more housing. We need to invest in our port capacity, our transportation capacity. We need to decarbonize the economy. We need to invest in green energy so we're not as dependent on, you know, very volatile fossil fuels. I think when you when you tell that story, I think it's both, to me, more convincing, but it also just leads you naturally to a lot of things that we on the left really already support and want to, want to be pushing for. So I, I, I think I think the supply constraints story, supply supply chain story is, is a more productive one. Okay. Um, yeah, I specifically wanted to talk about oil, obviously, because um, that is, we see these sort of short-term solutions being bandied about that would also be sort of good things in themselves, right? Like having a more normalized, less sanction-ridden relationship with countries like Venezuela and Iran. But to do that just in terms of keeping the fossil fuels flowing is is not a great plan. And so, right, so how do we in this moment, again, like think about what's going on with the price of oil and specifically use this as a moment to push for decarbonizing the economy? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the decarbonizing one is, is just such a, a low, low bar. It's, you know, it's something we've got to do if we if we want to have a planet, you know, for, for our grandchildren or, you know, for, for maybe even for ourselves in our old age that we could live on. Um, and it's it's a it's a great way to, you know, support good jobs and transform society in a lot of other positive ways. But it's also, you know, we have a lot of very straightforward and direct things we can do to reduce the use of fossil fuels. You know, electric vehicles and charging stations are great. Public transit and walkable communities are a lot better. Bike lanes are a great way to reduce the use of fossil fuels. You know, there's so much energy wasted in buildings. You know, people talk about weatherizing housing. It, you know, it, 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 it makes people's eyes glaze over. But actually, there, there's a lot of waste of, of, of fossil fuel energy because, how, and, and, you know, small homeowners, it's, it's a hard thing to pay for. You don't really know how to go about it. And obviously, you know, landlords who don't pay the utility bills themselves don't have any particular incentive or very strong incentive to make these improvements. So it's a very natural area for the government to step in and, and say, we're going we're gonna to make this happen one way or another. Uh, so there's just, there's just a long and, you know, improving our grid, you know, is a great way to, to help bring more, uh, you know, sustainable uh, electricity online. There, there, there's a lot of stuff that we can do, and and we're already doing it, but we can do it a lot more, and we can do it a lot faster. Uh, now that said, I think it's absolutely appropriate and 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 smart to to say this is a good argument for normalizing relations with Venezuela and Iran. You know, it's it's actually you know it's really kind of telling when you think about it. You know, there's a lot of people out there who say. You know, some people believe the Fed has a magic wand and they can just raise interest rates a point or two and inflation will just come down because of expectations. You know, it's like a fairy. Um, 
Other people are more realistic and say, yes, if the Fed is going to control inflation, it's going to mean a deep recession. It's going to mean high unemployment. It's going to mean a lot of people out of work, out of their houses, a lot of misery. But that's just the price we have to pay to get inflation under control. Well, okay, if inflation is such a crisis that you're willing to risk all of that, shouldn't you also be willing to think a little bit out of the box in other areas? If inflation is such a crisis that you're willing to say millions of people have to lose their jobs and worry about where their next meal is coming from. Maybe maybe if it's that big a crisis, it's also worth, you know, setting aside whatever feelings you have about Maduro and, and, and you know, importing Venezuelan oil to help bring the price down or, you know, honoring the agreement we already made with Iran and, and um, you know, normalize. So I think I think it's it's 100 percent appropriate and sensible to say there's a if you if you really think inflation is such a, a crisis that we need to take these really harsh measures, you know, somebody I think it was Dylan Matthews and Vox just said, you know, well, I know that, you know, uh, this is going to be terrible, but it's like chemotherapy for the economy. Well, maybe before you get chemotherapy, you should you should double check the diagnosis. Maybe you should see if there's any other less invasive treatments that might be available. I mean, you know, I think that's usually not people's first go to when they're feeling unwell is chemotherapy. Right. So it's like there's, there's this it shows you there's something people people have some other sort of agenda or interest here. Right. So we've been talking about this question of the, the the chemotherapy for the economy is jacking up interest rates, maybe not to Volcker shock levels. Um, actually, maybe we should start off by like, tell us about the Volcker shock. What was that? That, you know, a lot of our listeners probably weren't alive then. I wasn't. Um, or at least I was born during it. And so what was that the last time we had a sort of inflation crisis in the US? What did they do? And why was it so god awful for working people? Well, the you know, the, the the story here is, well, the fact is prices were rising fairly rapidly over the, the 70s and into the early 1980s, um, higher inflation rates than we're seeing today, you know, as high as 10% over a number of years, and not just for this relatively brief period we've seen it now. Now, there's a lot of debate, even today, about what was driving that. And some people say it was an overheated economy, and some people say it was spending from the Vietnam War that wasn't paid for, and some people say it was strong labor and rising wages. Obviously, a big part of it was the fact that we had very rapidly rising energy prices in that period, you know, two oil shocks. But in any case, uh, you know, and the interesting thing is early on, for instance, under the Nixon administration, there was actually a lot of creativity in terms of thinking about how to respond to this, it's really kind of remarkable if you look at, uh, you know, the way that Nixon talked about rising prices um, versus today. The idea, for instance, that rising energy prices means people should drive less and we're going to take steps to get people to drive less, you know, price controls, you know. So so there was but but eventually you sort of got a consensus under under the Carter administration, very clear consensus that um, the only solution was was. Ordinary people had to accept a drastic fall in their standard of living, and labor in particular had to be broken so that they could no longer demand big wage increases. And and Paul Volcker, brought in by Carter at the Fed, took that as his mission. That was his goal, and he was very explicit about it, that he wanted to break the back of labor um, and, 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 and prevent people from demanding high wages, and that eventually was going to bring down inflation. And the method was, you know, Interest rates are always a little bit exaggerated as the sole tool of, of, of monetary policy. The Federal Reserve has a lot of tools to influence the financial system. They're sort of sitting at the apex of the whole banking system, and they have a lot of tools to influence how much lending banks are willing to do and on what terms and 
what other financial institutions can do. So essentially, they, they just really cut off the flow of credit to the economy. Businesses could not borrow. People couldn't borrow. And interest rates, you know, if you could borrow, were extremely high. Um, you had a very, very deep recession, uh, certainly the, the deepest uh, before 2007, and, you know, arguably in some ways even deeper. And uh, enormous rise in unemployment, and eventually prices did come down. But, uh, you know, you also had a huge fall in wages and a, and a very severely weakened labor movement. And again, Volcker was, was absolutely clear that the weakening of the labor movement was not an unfortunate side effect. It was the thing. You know, he, he said at one point, you know, the most he said the most important thing that, that, that the Reagan administration did to, to support the fight against inflation was to break the air traffic controllers union after after the PATCO union, which endorsed Reagan uh, in the 1980 election, but then went on strike. Uh, uh, Reagan, you know, just said, we're, we're not negotiating. You're all fired. And in fact, banned from working in air traffic control ever again. We're bringing in, in, in scabs to replace you, which nobody nobody did. You know, it was completely so unheard of, but he did it. And, and from Volcker's point of view, like that was what the fight against inflation was about. And the interesting thing, and, and, you know, again, you had a very deep recession. It was sort of beautifully timed from the point of view of the Reagan administration because it really started right as the election happened. So great time to be running against an incumbent who was actually sort of responsible for it. And then the worst of it was over, you know, by 1982 or 83. So by 84, you know, he could run on this morning in America kind of pledge. But the interesting thing about this is, you know, the Fed for a long time after this, it wasn't just Volcker. They were they were they continued being obsessed with any possibility that there might be a resurgence of unions. Um, you know, when you get into, um, you know, the late even in the late 90s, um, which, you know, maybe you do. You probably still don't remember. But the, uh, the UPS strike in, 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 I think, 1997, which was which was a big, big deal at the time. You know, it was it was after you know, the bloodbath of the 80s. It was it was one of the first big, high profile and successful uh, strikes in the country, um, you know, the the, the people in the, at the Fed were tearing their hair out. You know, I've just got some quotes here. You know, one of them says, um, the, the UPS strike has done a good deal of damage. The settlement may go a long way towards undermining the wage flexibility that we started to get in labor markets with the air traffic controller strike back in the early 1980s. So wage flexibility, you know, taking away people's ability to, to control or have any influence over their own wages. That was the success under Volcker. And now they're worried that if the UPS workers can, can win a strike, they're going to lose that. Greenspan says uh, at the same time, Alan Greenspan, the chair of the Fed at that time, the air traffic controllers confrontation with President Reagan set in motion a fundamental change in policy for this country more than 15 years ago. It is conceivable that we will look back at the UPS strike and say it too signaled a significant change. Um, so, you know, I was I, I remember it. I, I also hoped a lot of us hoped that it would signal a significant change, which, you know, uh, fortunately, from Greenspan's point of view and unfortunately from ours, it didn't really happen. You know, it's it's really kind of funny um, reading this stuff. You know, there's there's an old joke you maybe heard about the, the, the two. It's, it's, you know, 1930s Berlin and two Jewish guys are sitting on a bench reading papers. And one of them looks over and says, hey, you're, you're reading the Nazi paper. Why, why are you reading that paper? He says, oh, this is the best paper. I pick up this paper. You know, I look around. And I, you know, I don't have a job. I don't know what's going to happen. I pick up this paper and I'm rich and I run the world. And, you know, so I really like that. You know, if you are on the side of labor and you read the uh, the transcripts of a Fed meeting, you know, that's there in, in the Fed meeting. You know, you still have the power to set wages for the whole economy and but uh, yes, yeah, so so they were they were obsessed um, well after Volcker with uh, with um... they're obsessed with 
a class project, basically. Yes, yes. Yeah, they're obsessed with a class project. And it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's much more about labor. And it's not as overt in recent years, in part maybe because, you know, as Greenspan also said, you know, workers were so traumatized by the 80s, he finally decided that there wasn't a, a sort of danger of a resurgent labor movement. And so in recent years, it, the language isn't usually that overt, but it's still it's still there. You know, um, at the at the last press conference where, where uh, Jerome Powell was, uh, you know, after every time they make a decision about interest rates, they go out and let the reporters ask them a bunch of questions. And somebody, I think it was a guy named Chris Rugeber from the AP, asked a very good question, which is, like, how exactly, just, just walk me through, like, how is this actually going to bring down inflation? Um, if, uh, if, like, what's, what's, what's the mechanism here? What are, what are you imagining happening? And Powell immediately goes into how workers are, you know, the, the, the labor market is dangerously overheated. Uh, that was his word, you know, this dangerously overtight labor market and workers are, it's too easy for them to demand big pay raises. And uh, if you can, it's too easy to find a job. You know, there's too many, too many job vacancies. And if too you too easy to find a job. Yeah. And you need to, if you can, if you can raise interest rates, you'll, you'll reduce the number of businesses that want to go out and hire people. They won't be able, you know, businesses won't be expanding as much if it's harder to borrow money. That's, that's the theory. So they're not going to be, um, you know, there are not going to be as many businesses that are growing and expanding. So there won't be as many job openings and people are going to have to, you know, accept lower wages. That's that is his 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 explanation of how monetary policy is going to work. So they're still very clear. It's about, you know, maintaining that that wage flexibility, you know. And I think for a lot of people, you know, it's not it's very clear. Obviously, there's a huge world of people talking about labor shortages who are who are just complaining about the fact that people are, are demanding. People don't want to work weekends. People don't want, you know, to take certain shifts. People are expect flexibility around childcare. People expect, you know, different working conditions. And that's infuriating if you're an employer who hasn't been used to having to deal with that sort of thing. But it's also, you know, to some extent, you can get that language from people around the Fed as well. Yeah. So you have had um, some disputes with other people who are also on the left side of things who are sort of supportive of of raising interest rates to a degree. So can you explain sort of what's going on there, um, what people who might be on our side of things say could be good about raising interest rates? Well, the first thing you have to realize is the entire... Uh, the entire field of macroeconomics and macroeconomics education over the past generation has basically become completely oriented around like imagining you are the all powerful central planners at the Fed. Like it's it's not much of an exaggeration to say that a lot of academic macroeconomics today is like the study of why the Fed does what's best for everyone. So this is just this is just like if you've had any of that kind of training, you you just imbibe this stuff, and it's it's just a sort of basic idea. Well, of course, inflation is the Fed's responsibility. Of course, if there's rising inflation, you have to have rising interest rates. That's just the way the world works. So I think for a lot of people, it's it's not so much that they've actually sort of thought about it and decided they actually like the idea of higher interest rates and they like the effects that's going to have. It's just that this is this is what you've always been used to. You've always been told it's the way you've been used to thinking about things. And it, um, it's just, it's just, it's, it would seem weird not to not to take that view. I also, I do think there's another specific thing that's been going on a bit over the past year, which is in debates over public spending bills, like like um, Build Back Better, you know, when that was in play, and and other other stuff. When people have sometimes said, you know, spending this much money is going to be inflationary, and now of course 
a lot of them are saying, yes, it was inflationary. Look, so, um, but when people would say it's going to cause inflation, a, a sort of easy response was, no, inflation is the Fed's job. The Fed has the tools to take care of inflation so we can have big public spending programs safely. So kind of kind of accepting the idea that the Fed is is just like the master of inflation made it easier to make the argument to to to, to for, for public spending. And I, I think, you know, I understand sort of tactically why people did that, but I think it's the sort of argument that turns around and bites you later on because you you've ended up sort of legitimating something that you really actually shouldn't shouldn't have. I think also I think there's there's it sort of goes with the first point, but I think people have some of them a little bit of a magical thinking about the Fed, the idea that, you know, you can just raise interest rates a little bit and inflation is just going to come down. I think I think a lot of people you know, who've been a little maybe more around the D.C. world and economics or a little more exposed to people in, in the world of finance where they're really obsessed with the Fed, you know, have an exaggerated view of, of the power of the Fed. And so they think you can have bring down inflation without needing to raise unemployment or, 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 or you know, cause a recession or limit people's ability to get higher wages. But I, I think that's not realistic. There's an argument that like a little bit of inflation is good for people who have a lot of debt because it reduces the cost of their debt. So how is debt in this moment? Again, I already mentioned student debt a little bit, but like how does debt and debt service fit into this conversation that we're having right now? It's absolutely true. You know, high high inflation or relatively high inflation. I mean, what, what matters for the debt is not the inflation as such. It's it's what we call nominal income growth. In other words, how much what you care about is how much did your wages go up over the past year? Because your wages are what you're going to be paying that debt out of versus the interest rate that you're paying on the debt. But let's put it this way. If, if inflation goes up to 10 percent and your wages go up by 10 percent, you might say you're no better off than you were last year. But if you have student debt or you have a mortgage or you have an auto loan, actually, you are better off. Because your 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 ten percent higher income doesn't buy you more stuff, but it does go farther in making payments on your debt. So it's absolutely true that uh, if if wages and prices kind of rise in sync, so you might say people aren't any better off. Actually, if you have debt, you are better off. And and historically, this is this has actually been pretty important. You know, an interesting thing that I've actually studied a bit is if you go back historically and you look at you know. 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. Well, one thing that's very obvious um, if you're looking at household debt is that people's debt burdens did not rise very much in the 60s and 70s. If you look at the average debt for a family, you know, over those years as a a fraction relative to their income, it's pretty flat. And then in the 80s, debt started rising as a fraction of income, you know, rose more steeply into the housing bubble. But if you ask, were people actually borrowing more after 1980? The answer is no. Actually, people were borrowing less. In the 1980s, you know, home, home buying rates went way down. People were buying less. They were borrowing less. But what happened is in that earlier period, you know, steady inflation and, and relatively low interest rates meant you could, you could borrow money every year and your debt burden didn't go up. After 1980, with the Volcker shock, when interest rates went up and inflation went down, that wasn't true anymore. And even when people borrowed less, they still found their, their debt to uh, income ratio going up. And then... You know, over the past decade, inflation hasn't been high, but interest rates have been relatively low and, and debt burdens have come down a lot. So it's it's absolutely true that if you've got a lot of debt, well, your best case scenario is your wages go up by a lot and prices and interest rates stay low. That would be the best case. But the, the worst case scenario for you would be if, if prices stay low and interest rates go up. 
if, if interest rates go up, you'd, you'd, you'd rather see some inflation and, and wage gains to keep pace with it. So in that sense, the, the situation we're in now where inflation is high, but wages are more or less keeping pace with it and interest rates are still fairly low is, is kind of a best case scenario for people who, who, who are carrying a lot of debt. So I hate to be a troll, but um, in that interview and in dissent that I mentioned, um, you noted that you, you thought that inflation was going to come down over the next year. Maybe from a year from now, it'll be 4%. It will not be 6%. Someone could dig up this interview if I'm wrong and throw it in my face, but I feel very confident. Do you still feel very confident, Josh? Well, it wasn't a year from that interview yet. I, you know, <laughs> I was wrong about inflation. A lot of people yeah. were wrong about inflation. I was wrong, but there's no, there's no point in beating around the bush. I'm surprised that inflation is as high as it is right now. I didn't expect it to be. I, I think, though, that, you know, we can we can break this into a couple pieces. Again, the recent surge in inflation is really about energy prices. This is not something that, you know, nobody, if you predicted, you know, that there was going to be a war in Ukraine, maybe you could also predict the rise in energy prices. But this really was not an economic question at all. And 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 the reason why, you know, the, the most recent month, you know, when they put out the March numbers and it's even higher, that's all about energy prices. You know, that's that's not good. You know, people, again, people need energy to get to work and heat their homes and so on. But it's not necessarily a sign that there's something amiss in our economy. A lot of the non-energy stuff is actually, you know, is actually coming down slowly. Um, and if you look at things like shipping rates, um, they're actually coming down quite a lot. If you look at like the cost to truck something across the country, it's, it's coming down. Or if you look at, you know, a lot of, a lot of excess capacity, they've actually added a lot of trucks over the past year. Like, this is one of the things I, I always think it's funny about the inflation hawks, because they tend to be on the right, they tend to be conservatives. But they're so pessimistic about the ability of private businesses to adapt. <laughs> Capitalism, they don't believe in price signals. Like, I, I, I'm a radical, but I, I, you know, I believe that if you the price of something goes up a lot. Businesses are probably going to try to find a way of supplying more of it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so you know, the, 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 the you know the, the truckers have. There, there's a lot more trucks out on the road than there were a year ago. Um, you know, the, the, the shipping costs are coming down, and a lot of the prices that we've seen big price increases in are, are going to come down over the next year. I I still feel confident about that. I don't know, you know, what the number is going to be, and it, a lot of it depends on oil, and I certainly don't know what that's going to do. I think rents are going to keep rising. I think that's a real problem, but we, it's, a, it's a, like a problem of rising rents. It's not a problem of inflation, but I think, I think that's going to keep happening. I think a lot of the other, other stuff, you know, car auto prices are already falling. Uh, I, think, I think a lot of the other stuff is going to come down. So I don't know, maybe that number will not turn out to be right, but I, I, I think I still, I still believe, maybe with less confidence, but still believe that inflation is going to be significantly lower a year from now. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, um, I mean, I guess that brings us back to the energy thing is the big, cause that was the big thing that drove the Volcker shock. And that is the big thing that's driving prices now that like, this is once again, a great opportunity to talk about the fact that we need to get off oil permanently. Yes. But so moving on from the oil. Um, so some of the attempts, we've talked about this a little bit already to push back on the inflation fear mongering is to talk about price gouging and windfall profits. Um, so what would it mean to try to, as we've alluded to, tackle some of these prices directly, whether we're talking about the price of energy, um, price controls, windfall profits, taxes? What, what are some of these measures that are not chemotherapy um, look like? 
Well, you know, we have a lot. Again, the easy one, we have we have rent control. Rent control works. We've got it in New York City. We've got it in a number of other places, you know, lots of places in New Jersey. Got it in a number of places in California. It's it's a very popular measure where it exists. You know, obviously the right hates it. Conservatives hate it. Uh, landlords hate it. But it's something we've done in this country for a long time. And it works. If you if you pass a law saying rents can't go up by more than X percent a year, then they won't. It's, it's actually pretty easy to enforce. So uh, so. That's a very straightforward thing we can do. Uh, there's other prices where the government already plays a really central role in regulating them that we can we can control. You know, drug prices, you know, if you, you know, I mean, if you have Medicare, say, here's how much we're going to pay, that, that already limits how much they're going to sell it for, or you can regulate it even, even more directly. You know, you could, you could limit the price that gets charged for gas. You'd also then, you know, you would, this is the problem they ran into in the 70s, if you limit the price that's charged for gas, you also have to have some system for deciding who gets to buy the gas at that price. And that, you know, if you call that rationing, it, it, it freaks people out. But it's it's not obvious that it's any worse for people than the situation where they can theoretically buy as much as they want, but the price is, uh, is you know, prohibitively high. Uh, you know, you can offer people alternatives. Again, I think, you know, to me, it's just insane that at the same moment that we have these freak, people are freaking out over these rising energy prices, we're saying, oh, everybody has to be back in the office. You know, we're not going to do work from home anymore, you know, because the downtown restaurants need the lunch business. You know, if, if, if we've, we've spent two years learning how, uh, you know, businesses can run without people driving to work every day. It's, it would be the easiest thing in the world to say, let's, let's um, do that again for a little while as a response to this energy crisis. We can also, you know, in some cases, what we want to do is not, um, I think, is is not, is just to sh- protect people from the impact of the price increases. Because, you know, a big a big problem, there's the, the sort of substantive problem of inflation, but there's also the problem that people really don't like inflation. It makes people mad. And unfortunately, you know, the prices that are most visible to people, like gas prices, are probably some of the hardest ones to actually do anything about. So... I think, you know, somebody in California proposed, let's just figure out the average amount each family spends on gas each month, and we'll send everybody in the state, you know, whether you have a car or not, everybody just gets a check for that amount each month until prices come back down. I think that's a great solution because it doesn't actually bring gas prices down, but it makes people a lot less mad and it makes sure that people, you know, who otherwise might face real hardship, you know, with the cost of getting to work are protected from that. And it just, it just, um, you know, it kind of neutralizes it as as a political issue a little bit. So I think in some cases it's it's really it's really that simple. And if you gave everybody the money, then they could also say, you know, figure out ways to spend less of it on gas and more of it on something else. Absolutely, absolutely. And the people <laughs> who aren't spending any on gas at all can can do whatever they want and take it as a reward for not uh, contributing to the gas shortage. I love uh, it. Basic income for for gas prices. Yes. So question from from friend of the show, Peter Fraze, was um, what's an inflation fighting agenda that won't crush the living standards of working people, but will crush Tesla's share price? Um, right. Like, how do we deal with that end of the economy? Or are these just things that we shouldn't be even I, thinking I, about? In the same I, have to admit, I, I don't think we should we should make not helping Tesla's share price uh, a goal here. The reality you know, I hate to say it, but the reality is we live in a world where most of our means of production are privately owned and operated for profit. Well, I hope someday not to live in such a world. But for the moment, we do live in such a world. And so anything useful that you want to do, by and large, is going to be enriching some capitalist. It's going to be generating profit somewhere because the, the all of the, not all, but many of the, our, much of our, our collective wealth, much of our collective labor, much of our knowledge and ability to cooperate with each other is in the hands of 
people who are who are not going to let us have it unless unless there's a profit. And that's just, you know, until we change that fundamental structure of our economy, trying to do things without enriching some particular capitalist is just it's just hopeless. It's just it's just whack-a-mole, you know. So I think you know, I think we should be speeding the transition to electric vehicles and uh, and that will, you know, Elon Musk is is a loathsome individual, but whatever, that's not what it's about. It's not about rewarding good people and 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 punishing bad people in this context. It's about building a better society that works better and that creates the political space for doing more of what we want to do. So you know, I think I think if 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 we actually could really aggressively move away from uh, you know gas vehicles and, and and towards electric vehicles, and Elon Musk got richer, fine. I mean, that said, I think there's a lot of other things we can do to reduce gas usage. You know, we should be talking about bike lanes. We should again be making bus service free. We should be really aggressively investing in transit, and not like metal detectors and more cops, but actual better service. Mm. And, and we should be talking, honestly, in the long run, we should talk about land use, um, both because, uh, you know, if we want to make housing more affordable, we, we really do have to build more of it. And also because if you want people to use transit and walk and take the bike, they've got to live in an environment where that's feasible. And those things will not, uh, you know, will not enrich uh, Elon Musk. Yeah. So the answer, the answer is less capitalism. Um, yes. Always. So, so- to wrap up then, um, you know, again, I'm, I'm, we're having this conversation on a labor podcast for a reason, because we have people who are going to be bargaining contracts and organizing new unions in this moment. And so what, uh, you know, one person noted, like, my union wants to start a contract negotiations by inviting management to a seminar on inflation given by an economics professor. Well, unless that economics professor is you or a couple of other people like, you know, friend of the show, Marshall Steinbaum, I imagine that that economics professor is going to have a bog standard inflation conversation that involves the Fed raising interest rates. So how do we think about this? If you were, say, working with a union, what would you advise them to be thinking about um, looking at new contracts and new organizing when it comes to inflation and things you might want to put into a contract? I think, you know, I I mean, I don't presume to tell organizers or or you know, activists, how to do their their own work. But I, I think if you're talking about a contract, I think it's absolutely appropriate to talk about the cost of living. And I think I think this notion of, of the wage price spiral has sort of been used to intimidate people out of the very common sense view that when prices are rising more rapidly, people need more rapid wage gains to keep up with that. And I think it's absolutely appropriate and, and probably pretty effective to use the fact that, you know, the cost of the things that your members buy has gone up by so much to argue that you need you need a raise that's commensurate with that. People know they need a raise, so you don't need to convince people they need a raise. Right. You need to convince people that they have the ability to get a raise, that there are better options elsewhere. And I think the great opportunity of this moment is precisely that we're facing this labor shortage and that people have a lot of options for quitting their job and getting better pay elsewhere. And there's, a you know, employers are in a position where they have to actually worry about that. And I think, I think really, um, you know, I think we shouldn't, we shouldn't be afraid to say that this is a strong labor market and it's a good labor market for workers. I think sometimes there's a little bit of a tendency to be more comfortable with a kind of doom and gloom story. But the truth is, if you want to organize a union, you know, it's at least this was certainly my experience doing organizing work. Convincing people that shit is fucked up and bullshit is the easy part. (laughs) Things suck. Yes. The hard part is convincing them that there's actually a better alternative. There's anything they can do about it. And so I think, you know, the important thing, especially from an organizing standpoint, is look, your boss needs you. 
you know, this is the moment. You could you could get a better job somewhere else if you wanted to. But on the other hand, your boss knows that. So this is our chance. You know, you don't have to be scared of getting fired, you know, because you could walk across the street. And how are they going to replace you? So I think I think we should actually, you know, lean in a little bit to the idea that this is actually a strong a strong environment for, for workers. And it's something that we should take advantage of. Labor is scarce. Well, and labor deserves to, to get paid more. That's that's kind of how markets work. So, you know, I, I wouldn't be afraid to say that. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And that was J.W. Mason, a professor of economics at John Jay College at the City University of New York. And now it's time for ARG, I wish I'd written that, in which we talk about the pieces that we read and liked but did not write. My pick for ARG is Abortion's Last Stand in the South, A Post-Row Future is Already Happening in Florida by Laura Morell in Reveal. This is not labor journalism per se. It doesn't talk explicitly about work issues, but it is a very particular kind of workplace at the heart of the story, abortion clinics in Florida. Abortion rights have, of course, been all over the news of late since the leak of a draft opinion that essentially overturns the Roe v. Wade decision. Most of the time, the debate in the media focuses on abortion as a medical procedure that pregnant people undergo, and all the social, cultural, and moral implications of that. But when I reported on abortion clinics about a decade ago, one thing I observed was the enormous pressure that weighs on everyone on staff, from the doctors and managers of the clinic to the receptionists and the assistants. And I thought about that when reading about the chronic abuse and harassment that this piece intricately documents. The piece focuses on one clinic, A Woman's Choice, which was founded by a woman who had two abortions herself in college and was moved to help others going through the same ordeal. Yet the kind of harassment described by Morell has been replicated at clinics across the country, protesters confronting both patients and their escorts with moral denouncements and jeers, blocking the driveway, or intrusively taking photos of patients, or making a spectacle by holding what Morell describes as, quote, Eucharistic processions complete with robed priests, swinging bells, and fervent renditions of Ave Maria, unquote. Some of this may seem comical, but it is exhausting, both for the patients as well as the healthcare providers. Police generally do not arrest the protesters, and sometimes the police face harassment themselves. Reveals analysis of police records related to clinics have found allegations of stalking and death threats. Quote, at the Bread and Roses Women's Health Center in Gainesville in May 2019, for example, a staffer reported that she believed a protester was stalking her outside her working hours. In a separate case a few months later, a woman whose daughter had an appointment at the clinic called and threatened, quote, I will kill that doctor if they kill my grandbaby. I will come there and kill them, unquote. In Lakeland, in June 2020, a man on a ladder yelled at patients and staff and menaced a passerby with mace, prompting an officer to note, During my contacts with this group, it appears that they harbor very extreme biblical views and may become a threat toward the clinic or any law enforcement officers that respond to this location. None of those cases resulted in any charges, unquote. 
One interesting and perhaps hard to believe thing about Florida, though, is that it's a state where abortion clinics have relatively high protections due to provisions in the Constitution that explicitly protect privacy. Those go farther than the federal constitutional right to privacy that is the crux of Roe v. Wade. However, the right to privacy and bodily autonomy that is seemingly enshrined in Florida's Constitution seems to be getting chipped away at daily by the throngs of harassing protesters who insist that their free speech rights should take primacy over patients' privacy rights or the rights of the clinic workers. In practice, a political landscape dominated by the right means that despite constitutional protections for privacy, anti-abortion zealots in Florida are able to disrupt, shame, and obstruct people when they are exercising their right to terminate their pregnancy. This means that when you work in an abortion clinic, you are subjecting yourself to abuse. You're not really entitled to a safe workplace. When I talk to workers at abortion clinics, many saw themselves as doing important work by helping patients, many of who often came in a pretty vulnerable state, feel safe despite all the chaos and meanness outside the clinic's doors. But the workers were also just doing their job. The kind of emotional labor that working at such a place entails is pretty hard to imagine. Not just trying to keep yourself focused and stable every day despite the constant harassment, but also having to provide stability and comfort to patients who just faced a picket line of people decrying abortion as murder and a sin. Morell's article reminded me of Sally Tisdale's 1987 essay, We Do Abortions Here, in which she reflects candidly on how she feels about her job as a nurse at an abortion clinic, which involves the daily ritual of disposing of fetal tissue in a freezer. She wrote, quote, abortion requires of me an entirely new set of assumptions. It requires a willingness to live with conflict, fearlessness, and grief. As I close the freezer door, I imagine a world where this won't be necessary and then return to the world where it is, unquote. The occupations that have been the most stigmatized, devalued, and misunderstood in history are often some form of reproductive labor or care work performed by women. Domestic workers, child care providers, home health aides, midwives, and working at an abortion clinic is part of that universe of jobs that are often done by and for people in underrepresented or marginalized communities. People who are striving for bodily and spiritual autonomy, but are often forced into silence and shame. What the protesters outside never understand is that inside, the labor they do isn't killing, it's giving life. The patients at these clinics will be in and out in less than a day, but the staff constantly have to live with the heavy emotions of knowing that a job that should be celebrated comes closer to being criminalized every day. We are all talking about Amazon a lot these days, and with good reason. So I thought for this week's ARG, I'd look at a piece by Jason Del Rey at Vox's The Highlight in its Future of Work issue, which contains a few ARG-worthy pieces, titled The Amazonification of the American Workforce. Basically, the role that used to be played by Walmart in American work is now filled by Amazon. Del Rey writes... Quote, more than 1.1 million people now work directly for Amazon in the U.S., with some in its offices and the majority in its ever-expanding network of more than 800 warehouse facilities in North America alone. At its current hiring rate, Amazon will overtake Walmart as the largest private sector employer in the U.S. in the next few years, meaning about 1% of U.S. workers will be employed directly by the tech giant, end quote. And friend of the show, Rebecca Given, tells him, quote, Anyone who wants to do business with Amazon has to conform, and anyone who wants to compete, that's kind of everyone, has to keep up with what they are doing with productivity, which seems to necessitate massive surveillance, end quote. There's some interesting detail in here about how Amazon became such a logistics monster, and it's notable, perhaps, who led that innovation. Delray writes, quote, 
This evolution was led early on by Jeff Wilkie, a former manufacturing executive who joined Amazon in 1999 and eventually rose to the number two position in the company as CEO of its core e-commerce business globally. Wilkie set out to overhaul the layouts of Amazon warehouses and the software powering their processes in order to speed up shipping times and make more accurate promises to customers. To do this, Wilkie and his team incorporated techniques he learned studying the lean manufacturing methodology, which aimed to maximize worker productivity while minimizing unnecessary steps. The warehouse work Wilkie oversaw eventually led company founder and former CEO Jeff Bezos to feel confident in launching Amazon Prime and its two-day delivery promise, end quote. Wilkie's work draws from Taylorism and Fordism, the famous innovations in, yes, manufacturing work reminding me of the thing that Minnesota Amazon worker Tyler Hamilton said to me last year. These jobs are basically like the industrial jobs that we used to have. Amazon is just the industrialization of retail. But these aren't jobs you can outsource. The only way you can be affordable and cheap is if it's right here. Opposing workers organizing, then, he said, was just part of Amazon's business model until we can get them to change it. So logistics, not manufacturing, is what's been driving American business for years now, and Amazon has become the clear leader on that front. Delray notes that Amazon's competitors are pursuing the company's practices, buying the same robots, and fueling investment in warehouse automation. He writes, quote, A cottage industry run by consultants and former Amazon employees has started to spring up in recent years, offering to train other business leaders on the ins and outs of the Amazon way. And, of course, there are the people who don't work directly for Amazon but are under its control, like all of those delivery drivers who famously pee in bottles. But Amazon's leading role has a body count. One former Amazon health and safety worker told Del Rey that he was discouraged from referring injured workers to outside doctors, in part because that could require the company to register the injuries with OSHA. Quote, they basically want you to influence or sell it that, hey, we can treat you here, we can do follow-ups here, we can keep icing your ankle, Ken, who was a paramedic and firefighter before joining Amazon, told Delray. Oh. Fucking traffic. Ken, who was a paramedic and firefighter before joining Amazon, told Delray. If a doctor gives him any job restriction or prescription or physical therapy, it's going to be an OSHA reportable event. If he referred an above-average number of employees to outside doctors, Ken told Delray. You were going to get some heat, and you were going to get interrogated, end quote. Despite its high turnover rates, the relatively high pay for warehouse work anyway, that Amazon offers can lead workers to stay at the company even when they know it's hurting them. Walter, a picker at Amazon warehouses in New Jersey for the past seven years, told Delray that the increasing rate of work has taken a toll. He writes, quote, my arms are so damn sensitive now it affects activities I seek to do outside the job. He wrote, noting how a simple household chore or wrong move at the gym can result in his forearms lighting up with electric pain. He said that over the years, he has learned how to use leverage while picking to minimize his pain, but his cocktail of pain solutions also includes compression sleeves, lidocaine, and occasionally CBD cream. On his worst days, Walter misses his previous warehouse jobs. He jokingly refers to those facilities as free-range warehouses. Here, I'm like a veal calf, he said. End quote. Jeff Bezos is, of course, no longer CEO, and the new leadership may try to take a carrot-and-stick approach to cooling the now white-hot union push at their company. 
Andy Jassy, the new CEO, has talked about reducing injuries, and Delray writes, quote, Perhaps under Jassy's leadership, Amazon will find ways to reduce injuries that will become a model for other companies that already emulate more customer-focused traits of Amazon's labor practices. But in a capitalist society like the U.S., Amazon's investors mainly judge its success on different metrics, sales, growth, and profits. As long as its employee injury rates don't dramatically alter those metrics for the worse, it's fair to be skeptical that the company will altogether prioritize injury reduction over the productivity that has made Amazon one of the biggest business disruptors in decades. How this push and pull plays out may very well determine how seriously Amazon's followers prioritize the well-being of their workforces as they try to compete and satisfy their customers' demands for speed and convenience, end quote. It's worth noting, of course, that the customers only demand that particular level of speed and convenience because the company decided this was where it was going to focus. There was not, before Amazon Prime, a massive movement of customers demanding one-day delivery. More often than not, you know, we could probably just go to the store if we were that desperate. While that convenience certainly helped during a pandemic when many people were trying not to leave the house to go to the store, the workers have repeatedly stressed that the convenience and safety were for some people, while they themselves were risking illness and death to bring often, well, silly products to people at lightning speeds. More recently, there has been a lot of attention to the suicide of a worker at the LDJ-5 facility and the deaths of six workers at a facility in Illinois who were working during a tornado. So, is Amazon going to try to beat the unionization push by improving conditions? Either way, the renewed attention to worker safety and stress can be seen as yet another win for the workers organizing at Amazon, the ALU, and their comrades around the country. Del Rey notes, quote, The pressure from the union drives seems to have forced Jeff Bezos himself to reconsider the company's treatment of its workforce. In his final shareholder letter as CEO in 2021, he said his company needs to do a better job for our employees. His new mission for the tech giant? Earth's best employer and Earth's safest place to work. That's all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on the cost of living and working, supply chains, tugboat workers, Amazon workers, and safety on the job. Thanks, as always, go to the folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis, and now Colin Kinneber for editing us, and most importantly, to all of you who have listened to us, shared us with your friends, tweeted about us, Facebooked about us, whatevered about us for the last nine years. We especially appreciate it if you can rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really, really does help us find new listeners, especially if those are nice five-star ratings. Special thanks once again to all of you who have supported us financially over the past nine years over at the Descent website or now at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash belabored. We really appreciate your help making it at least somewhat sustainable for us to keep doing labor journalism. Labor journalism, like all other forms of work, is not actually free and is often exhausting. So um, it really, really helps for you to kick in a little bit and show us that what we do is helping you. If you want to share your story of working or organizing, you can always email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you're a warehouse worker or a restaurant worker, a teacher or a taxi driver, we want to hear from you. If you have questions for our uh, guest economist this week, you can also send those to us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. You can also tweet at us at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for everything. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. 
For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.